This is the first of a three-part series that I'm offering over the next three weeks. And I want to give you a little context first for that whole series, for what it is that we'll be talking about over the, the next few weeks. Felix Adler was, as many of you know, the founder of Ethical Culture, the religious movement that we are part of, which he founded in uh, his early 20s in the late 19th century. Adler wrote, among other things, a book called The Reconstruction of the Spiritual Ideal, which was kind of his best attempt at what might be thought of as systematic theology or systematic philosophy, putting down in a systematic or an ordered way what he thought about the world. And so it's out of that book and out of his hope for system and, and hope to create a system of thinking that the next three weeks come. Adler believed that we came to the religious impulse out of experiences of pain or longing in our lives. He wrote in The Reconstruction of the Spiritual Ideal, every great ideal is intended to be a relief from some sort of spiritual pain. Ideals are pang-born. They are the offspring of suffering. They are raised up before the mind in order to allay anguish. This is especially true of the religious or cosmic ideals. So he had this sense that we came to our ideals, we needed ethics, religion, spirituality in our lives because of our experience of loss, of pain, of worry or anguish in the world. Now, for some of us, I think that experience of pain and our need for a community or a, an ethical basis of life feels very present, feels very alive in our own experience of the world. And for some of us, it's not quite descriptive of our experience. But over time, I think Adler caught on a historical truth that the religious impulse over centuries has come out of people's longing people's need for something more as they experience what can be seen as the sorrows of the world. Adler wanted to be a little bit more specific. He felt, and I'll quote, often people are ill at ease and yet are not clear as to what it is that troubles them and cannot make their way through difficulties because they have not sufficiently grasped the terms of the problems to be solved. So he actually posited three specific spiritual pains, and those are the pains that we'll go over in the next three weeks starting today. Today we'll talk about our own insignificance, the first of Adler's spiritual pains. Next week we'll talk about the suffering that we see around us. And in our third and final week we'll talk about our divided conscience, essentially the way that we do not always live up to our own ideals and our own values. And, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I promise that this will not be all depressing, if only because children will be excitedly making sushi in the building at the same time. <laughs> I think although Adler saw the world as based in these pains, he ultimately sought to create a religion, to create an ethical philosophy that would allow us relief from those pains. And so I hope as we go through each day, we may start with pain but end up somewhere else. And if I haven't ended up there by the end of today, I hope you'll let me know so I can try to do a little better and leave you hopeful next week. <laughs> so that first spiritual pain, the one we're talking about this morning, 
He called this, and I quote again, the sense of the insignificance of man in this wide universe. I actually sort of like his um, slightly misogynistic phrasing there because my interpretation is obviously women are not insignificant. We don't have anything to worry about. So for about half of us in this room, relax. You know, don't, don't worry about a thing. Your significance is guaranteed. Unfortunately, I believe Adler meant something more like the sense of the insignificance of a human being in this wide universe. So what then did he mean by insignificance? You know, he wrote at a time, the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, a time of quickly increasing knowledge about the cosmos, about evolution, about geology and what that told us about the history of the world. You can imagine, even as we in our own time think that our knowledge is rapidly expanding, the sense that people at the turn of the last century must have felt as well, as what they knew about the world just seemed to increase practically daily with scientific discoveries. I think his understanding of a human's insignificance in the world was added to by that sense of the expanding cosmos that he experienced. He wrote, the geologic periods reduce the span of human life to a duration almost imperceptible. The ephemeridae, which is a type of mayfly, live from, from morning to night. A single day is allotted to their existence. The day of a man, the vaunted threescore years and ten, is longer, but compared with the ages and the eons is like the inhalation and exhalation of a breath." End quote. Adler felt that our significance was hurt by the fact that our lives were so small in the vastness of geological time. He felt that we were small in physicality, too, a little person in the vastness of the cosmos and the vastness of space, that we were small in significance because of the natural order of evolution, we were no longer, as he understood it, held up as elevated among all creatures, but part of a line, part of a continuing evolution. So in those three ways, in space, in time, and in natural order, he felt our significance was threatened, that we felt keenly that pain of our own insignificance. I actually found by the end of reading that piece of Adler that I was feeling relatively small. <laughs> This uh, past few days, I've been at the National Leaders Council, along with our musician, Hugh Taft-Morales, who is also an ethical culture leader. And one of our uh, times together was listening to a description of the cosmos over, I think it started with uh, 4.6 billion years ago, um, and then went forward, got to 4.2 billion years ago, and then... 3.8 billion years ago. You know, we know so much more even than Adler did in the late 19th century. In some ways, I think our sense of our insignificance only grows as we see how long this world has existed, how big it is, and how much we don't know about the world around us. So I think one way to approach this sense of insignificance is through a, a philosophical lens and for me, the piece of philosophy that most keenly addresses our sense of insignificance is existentialism. I have to um, 
share my debt of gratitude to Hugh, who in the last few days walked me through existentialism a little bit. Hugh was, before he was an ethical culture leader, a philosophy professor, and I think has a, a personal affinity for existentialism. Is that fair? He's, he's giving me the, thumb, the thumbs up. And so I thank him, and if I say things wrong, he's promised not to tell you. Um, <laughs> Existentialism as a philosophy examines the meaning of life and especially of human existence. And it asks many of the same questions, I think, that Adler asked when he pondered our own insignificance. Existentialism finds answers and meaning in the importance of the individual experience. And we'll get a little bit to some of those answers later. The term existentialism was actually not coined until 1940, but it caught on very quickly to describe the feeling of the day in many philosophers' and thinkers' minds, and it was applied to thinkers who came well before 1940. You'll see eventually we'll talk a little bit about Kierkegaard from the uh, mid-19th century, um, who is called the father of existentialism, although he was dead long before the term was invented. Another ethical culture leader, it was kind of a group effort the last few days as we talked about existentialism together. I'm not sure if they wanted to, but I had a platform to put together, so (laughs) that's what we did. Another ethical culture leader, Richard Canary from the Philadelphia Society, shared this understanding of existentialism, that to exist comes before essence, you know, right in the word existentialism. That, that is, that our own existence comes before the objective truth, our experience, our subjective meaning-making comes before objective truth. And really, that, that difference between objective reality, between the world as it truly exists, and our own experience is a key part of existentialism. One of the struggles of existentialism is the struggle with absurdity. I actually think more of absurdity with, you know, British humor, things like that. It's not what they mean. Absurdity, and this is a quote from Hugh, actually, is the clash between intent and reality. That we live as if we matter so much where the reality is that we don't. Absurdity, the existence of absurdity in the world, depends both on the actual meaninglessness of the world, the meaninglessness of reality, and also on our own insistence on meaning. So it wouldn't exist if we didn't think there ought to be meaning out there somewhere. We have these moments, realizations of absurdity as individuals, when we think something is so important in our lives and suddenly realize that it is not, that it is not the key to our happiness, nor certainly the key to the happiness of the world. Another key part of existentialism is the idea of abandonment, the concept that we are ultimately entirely alone, another one that I think relates to that sense of insignificance in the world. Existentialism also exists just as it exists as a philosophical concept in popular thought, that concept, that idea of why we bother, that we are so insignificant that we just shouldn't worry anymore, shouldn't care anymore. We often talk about existential angst, and I think um, frequently we imagine existential angst as a period uh, important to adolescence. My own, I have poems that I wrote as a 13-year-old, which will never obviously be shared in platform, because they're really, really embarrassing. And um, 
as a relatively privileged, happy uh, young woman, I had to kind of create existential angst based on my imagining of others' realities. But it's still there. You know, we imagine angst and, and this sense of trying to figure out who we are in the world and what it all means as a, a key part of adolescence, of finding our sense of self. I actually think we sometimes experience existential angst as well when we come into a new set of values. Many of us in this room were raised with one set of values or beliefs about the world, perhaps from a religious tradition or from the teachings of our parents, and over our lifetimes found another way to interact with the world, found that what we were raised with no longer resonated for us. I think in that moment of rejection of the old, we sometimes have an experience of that kind of angst that we might might more frequently see in adolescence, a kind of new adolescence as we find our sense of selves in the world. So one question, I guess, as we think about existentialism and Adler is, is this philosophy or is it religion? Of course, that's a question that people apply to the ethical culture movement as well in a broader sense. My answer this morning, I think, is that the question may be philosophical, but that the response is often religious. Religion, remember, comes from the root word ligare, meaning the ties that bind us together. So while the question about our insignificance, about why we matter, may be a philosophical one, we find answers that look distinctly religious. Forrest Church, a Unitarian theologian who died in the last two years, wrote, Religion is our human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. Knowing that we are going to die, we question what life means. So what are the answers that religions have found, that philosophers have found, and what do we find, I wonder? Traditional religion frequently finds meaning in life in a plan. It rejects that sense of our own insignificance and instead puts it squarely, puts our life and the meaning of our life squarely into a concept of what the world looks like, how the cosmos is run. Sometimes directed, a plan that's directed by an individual entity, sometimes a sense of the universe simply having clarity. Even that deistic approach of the divine clockmaker, you know, the, who, who sets the clock in motion and then steps away, you can see, see still a sense of trust in the workings of the clock. Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, had another answer. He was a Christian theologian, this is the one I mentioned, who's seen often as the father of existentialism, although he would not have known or claimed that phrase. And so as a Christian theologian, he was part of traditional religion. You might imagine that his response would have been very similar to that sense of being securely within a plan. Kierkegaard, though, actually had a non-traditional response, and I think it's one that's really helpful to us. One of the things that Kierkegaard held firmly was that we cannot know ultimate truth or ultimate reality that it is indeed unknowable, and that faith requires us then to believe without proof. As a Christian, he felt that proof actually negated faith, that faith was worthless if you were backing it up with proofs. And so he rejected all of those proofs, proofs and said instead that he would live with the passion of faith without knowledge. So it's not for Kierkegaard about knowing the meaning 
but about creating it. He was one of the first in that existential line to acknowledge that the individual is responsible for giving life meaning, a response that became a hallmark of existentialism. Another existentialist philosopher that I think helps to give us answers is Camus. Camus was a 20th century existentialist, so within that time when existentialism had actually been identified. And he was one who, unlike some others, rejected despair and specifically rejected and, and wrote against suicide, which can be seen in some ways as a response to our fear of meaninglessness, our fear of insignificance. Instead of allowing for despair, he talked about another way to create meaning. And I think one of the stories where it becomes most evident is when Camus talks about the myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was the, um, the I guess, man in the underworld, in the Greco-Roman world, who was consigned by the gods to roll a rock up the cliff. You know, we talk about Sisyphean tasks, frequently, I think, related to answering email in a timely fashion. <laughs> And we have that sense of rolling the rock up the cliff, and of course, it falls right back down. Well, that's a symbol, in some ways, of the existential crisis, the crisis of meaninglessness. Here he gets the rock, finally, all the way to the top, and we know it's going to roll right down. He knows it's going to roll right down, and for all of eternity, he is damned to push the rock up the cliff and have it roll right down on him again. Camus actually said that Sisyphus deserved respect because of the way that he created meaning, because he threw himself into the task of rolling that rock, that he rolled it up with passion, despite his sure knowledge that it would fall back on him again, and that in so doing, he created meaning in the rolling, in his effort, uh, as, he, as he pushed the rock further forward. Camus also responded to the sense of absurdity, that concept, remember, in existentialism, that reality is meaningless and we choose to create reality, the problem as we look at those two pieces. Camus actually thought absurdity was fine, that we shouldn't try to resolve it or wish it away. Remember that it depends on our need for meaning. Camus then would say that we create absurdity, we create the absurd because it depends so on our hope for meaning in order to exist, and it's a byproduct of life. So you can see the way in which Camus settled himself in our human experience of life, even as we experience it as different from the meaninglessness of reality, the way in which we create meaning by our very trying our very passion to push the rock up the meaningless slope. Felix Adler himself was not part of the existentialist tradition, but he did, of course, respond to that question we've identified as being part of an existentialist understanding, that question of our own insignificance. And Adler was another meaning maker, and the founder, of course, of our religious tradition, which places meaning-making in our own hands. Adler emphasized human experience and its importance in our tradition, another key part of existentialist thought. He also sought to create meaning by acknowledging a particularity about the human spirit, by believing in it. 
From that book, The Reconstruction of the Spiritual Ideal, he wrote, the truths of science, remember science was his grounding for, for our own understanding of our insignificance. The truths of science must be received as such, as truths, but a way must also be found of not only vindicating, but enhancing the spiritual prerogative of man, of establishing as a fact that there exists in him a spiritual nature which exalts him, which gives him a unique place in the scheme of things. In other words, Adler hoped that we would find a way through our insignificance to notice our spiritual nature. Man, he wrote, is a witness of the infinite striking into the finite world, that there was a piece of us that continued on. I think that piece is actually really tied up in an important ethical culture and Adlerian concept, the concept of inherent worth. We talk a lot here about our belief in the inherent worth in every person, and our belief in it despite sometimes evidence to the contrary, so perhaps we are a little Kierkegaardian ourselves. We don't need proof of inherent worth in order to believe that each person holds it. That inherent worth, Adler thought, that we all possess is the piece that makes us more than simply a cog in the scientific wheel. It's the piece that gives us a spiritual nature, or what Adler would have called a soul. It is, therefore, an escape from the meaninglessness and insignificance that could come from being seen as part of this huge cosmos. There's another idea I want to offer you today, the idea that the contemplation of our part in, vast, in the vast world can actually be an introduction of our own significance rather than our insignificance. There's a quote from the physicist Richard Feynman. I don't know if you've read Feynman, but he's funny and accessible, which is not, are not always terms applied to physicists. <clears throat> and, uh, and I think this quote is, is part of it. He wrote, it is a great adventure to contemplate the universe beyond man, to contemplate what it would be like without man as it was in a great part of its long history and as it is in a great majority of places. When this objective view is fully appreciated to then turn the objective eye back on man viewed as matter, to view life as part of the universal mystery of greatest depth is to sense an experience which is very rare and very exciting. We see, I think, in those words of Feynman's, which are from a, a series of lectures that became a book called The Meaning of It All, we see that for him, our place as this little tiny blip in the cosmos of the world is not a call to insignificance, but rather a call to our own significance, to our sense of connectedness to the universe and to all time. For him, being a cog in the universe is awe-inspiring because it connects us to something so radically huge. Next week, we begin our theme of awe and wonder in the month of March, and we'll start with a story for our children, a story that many of us have read to our own children or have read to us, that's on the day you were born, and it's a story that I think speaks exactly to what Richard Feynman meant. It's a story about our connection to a vast world. For me, that sense of connection to the world sometimes comes as I contemplate the cosmos 
but more frequently as I contemplate humanity. I'm just a little bit of a smaller thinker than Richard Feynman, you know. There's a quote that I've used before and love, originally from Theodore Parker, a Unitarian minister and abolitionist in the 19th century, and then quoted again by Martin Luther King Jr. The quote is that the arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The idea, I think, is that we are part of this huge story of humanity, and that our job is to make our part one that adds to the story of love and of dignity in the world. All we have is our little piece, our little chapter, and yet we have a responsibility to write that chapter well. For me, this is a way to make meaning in the world, to make meaning out of the possibility of insignificance. And it's about religion, I think, because it asks us to have faith that there will be those who come after us that will continue the arc that we are part of. It gives us, too, a responsibility to teach our children to be the ones that come after us, to teach our children and the children of those that we love to pick up the ark to catch the torch that we pass between us. I think in some ways it then means that we ourselves create meaning for our ancestors' lives as we seek to fulfill their hopes and dreams, and we trust that the meaning of our own lives will be created by those who come after us, that they will in some way give our lives meaning. At the same time, I think there's something to that idea of Camus that our passion in the moment, like Sisyphus's, gives the current moment meaning for us. I hope somewhere in all this existentialism and physics and Theodore Parker, you found a response that helps to address that problem of insignificance, unless obviously you're a woman and you didn't need to worry about it. I think the most important thing in our religious tradition is that we are the meaning makers. We are the ones that create meaning in our lives. I think, in fact, about the very title of Adler's book. He called it The Reconstruction of the Spiritual Ideal. And I think he gave us then the power, the idea that we reconstruct that ideal all the time, that we are the constructors and the reconstructors over a lifetime. It places a great power and a great responsibility in our hands, and ones that we want to use then wisely as we think about creating meaning in the world. And I would say, after all of that, we have to remember to do it with a little bit of humor and not to take ourselves too seriously as we make meaning in what can be an insignificant life. I ask then for Hugh to take us to the sense of insignificance and a sense of humor as we create meaning in the world. <laughs> 